I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And we will talk about dignity. Dignity is important. No question, democracy is under great threat in the United States and around the world. And there is an urgency to challenge oligarchy, plutocracy, patriarchy, and all forms and structures which serve to maintain power at the top instead of with the consent of the governed, as our founders intended. One archy I didn't mention is the title of the new book we're going to discuss today. It's called Powerarchy. Yes, Powerarchy. The subtitle is Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. Our guest is its author, Melanie Joy. Melanie, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, Melanie Joy has a Ph.D. and a master's in education, Harvard educator, a psychologist, international speaker. She's author of three previous books, including the award-winning Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism. Joy is the eighth recipient of the Ahimsa Award, previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela. Not a bad act to follow for her work on global nonviolence. Her fifth book, Getting Relationships Right, will be published in January 2020, and I believe you live in Berlin, Germany? I do now, but I'm originally American, yep. Uh, well, still American, and I assume you'll vote. Uh, there's no, <laughs> there is no lack of books about social and economic injustice, which are so pervasive. What is it in its many, what it is in its many and various manifestations? But the psychology of that oppression has largely remained a mystery. As a psychologist, what did you sense was the need for your book? What sparked you to write it? Well, it's been from my experience working in different social justice movements um, and also just my, my really strong interest in social transformation, this question, you know, why is it that we continue to grapple with one oppression after the other? And why is it that sometimes, you know, or often when one oppression is, is diminished, um, you know, another one pops up or another one is strengthened and I was also seeing in, you know, resistance movements, these movements that were challenged uh, or, or structured to challenge systemic oppression, that the movements themselves started to adopt some of the very behaviors and attitudes that we're trying to challenge um, in the world. And so I became curious about what, what is the deeper psychology that is driving all of these systems um, and when we look at systems of oppression, sexism, racism, speciesism, and so forth, and we look at abusive systems such as an abusive work, a dysfunctional workplace or an abusive relationship, when we look at the way that we relate with other animals and the environment, we can see that all of these systems have um, a similar structure. They have a common denominator. They all stem from, reflect, and reinforce the very same mentality. Uh, really? Wow, that's 
there's a lot to get into there. That must have been some interesting research, and it's like, you know, we, we talk about it sort of at the edges so often, the the, the, uh, the oppression, but uh, it sounds quite valuable to look at what, what are the motivating uh, factors involved here. Now, the term you invented, which is the title of this book, is powerarchy. How would you define that word? Well, powerarchy is the belief system that conditions us to see certain individuals or groups as more worthy of moral consideration, of being treated with integrity, with respect than others. Um, And it is structured to maintain unjust power imbalances. Um, And the system also causes us to act in ways that are relationally dysfunctional. In other words, that violate our integrity and that harm the dignity of others, leading to disconnection, leading us to us to feel disconnected with one another. So a way to really understand what this looks like is to think of your own experience in your own life. I mean, a system can be as small as two people, right, such as a relationship um, or as big as a social system. So if you think of a relationship in your life that you consider a good or a great relationship, Think of how you feel in that relationship, in particular, how connected you feel with that other person. And chances are you feel a fairly strong connection with them. And if you think about how you experience your sense of fundamental worth or your dignity, probably you feel that that person honors your dignity. You feel fundamentally worthy with them. And you probably also feel that they practice integrity toward you. They treat you the same way that they would want to be treated um, if they were in your position. And you probably feel as well that it's easier for you to be your better self. You probably feel empowered to be your better self. And if you think about a relationship in your life with somebody that's not so great, maybe it's a relationship that's ended or with somebody you've only met online, like an online troll, Mm -hmm. chances are you have exactly the opposite experience. You feel, instead of feeling connected with them, you feel disconnected. You feel that your dignity is not honored but harmed in their presence. They don't treat you as though you're fundamentally worthy. They don't practice integrity toward you. And probably you also struggle to be your better self with them, the self that you want to be. So when we look at all systems of oppression, such as racism and sexism, and also at abusive systems, we can see that these systems have the same basic makeup and they reflect the same basic mentality and they create the same basic consequences, disconnection and disempowerment. Wow, I, that really uh, resonates. I think probably everybody can connect with that and, and relate with that because, uh, yeah, there are people we don't know, and certainly I, I think part of racism is you don't know them. They're the other, so they're not part of your you know little world. And so... People on one side, you know, put the other side down and don't respect them and are afraid. There's some degree of fear, I think. And same with, with the other side. And it goes on and on and on. Non-relational. Interesting. I think that's an interesting point. You say that uh, being a non-relational system, powerarchy disconnects us from one another and from ourselves, conditioning us to act against our values of compassion and justice. Say more about that, please. Well, it's really, powerarchy is organized around a central belief, the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, that some individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated respectfully than others. 
And so, and, and we can see this getting carried out again and again, you know, all, all over the place. We, right. we create in our minds this sense of a morally inferior other. Yes. And so as long as we buy into this belief that somebody or a group or an individual somehow forfeits their right to having their dignity honored, um, or never deserve that right in the first place, then we're really at risk of recreating um, powerarchy in new forms. And we can see this happening in our resistance movements as more and more proponents, more and more people who are challenging powerarchy are actually using powerarchy to show that powerarchy is wrong. No. Using, you know, the same, the same tactics in our outreach and our communication that reflect the very problematic behaviors um, that we're challenging, so we end up risking becoming the very, very hmm. thing we're seeking to transform and potentially cannibalizing our movement. Oh, boy! As you speak, I I think about so many people in the resistance on what's come to be called the left. I consider it actual conservatism. You know, caring about the good of the people and equality, mm-hmm. but. Let's face it, they, a lot of people look down on, on Trump people, and it's hard not to. You look at these Nazi-like rallies, and, you know, when Hillary Clinton foolishly said, uh, it was a, called his people a basket of deplorables, some people, let's face it, on the left kind of look down on them. And, and what does that accomplish? It doesn't, I don't, I wonder how much it moves the needle. Your thoughts? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's understandable to be so frustrated. I mean, when we see what's going on in the world, to feel morally outraged, you know, yeah. to feel this depth of frustration and despair and grief and all of the other accompanying emotions. I mean, these are legitimate emotional responses to the atrocities that are unfolding in the world. Right. Um, and they make sense. And at the same time, it's important uh, how we relate to this, these emotions matters. It matters very much. And so our communication, you know, if, if one of the differences between people on the right and on the left, you know, I'll put both those terms sure, in sure. quotes, yeah. if you point out, um, but uh, it is the recognition that people who are more progressive recognize the existence of powerarchies in the first place. These are, you know, systemic structural injustices, systems that are set up to maintain unjust power imbalances, and again, that condition people to act against their core moral values. And um, most people, many people who are support Trump, you know, arguably voted against their own interests. Yeah. And arguably, um, they don't perceive themselves as, quote-unquote, bad people. Right. A big difference is that they don't recognize the actual existence of powerarchies. And they don't recognize that what they're doing is they're voting to support injustice and unjust power imbalances. So, you know, a couple of questions I think that are really important for those of us who are working towards social transformation to ask are, how do we communicate in a way so that our message is heard as it is intended to be? We're not trying to, you know, quote-unquote, sell people something that's actually antithetical to what they truly care about. Mm -hmm. Most people want to do the right thing. Most people do Mm -hmm. genuinely care about their impact on others. And many, many people in this country and elsewhere are utterly unaware of the reality of systemic injustices. So how do we communicate in a language that they can hear? And how do we communicate in a way that doesn't reflect the very powerarchical mentality that we're really trying to transform? Because at the end of the day, it is this this powerarchy just keeps on reproducing itself in new forms. We 
oppressions just keep repopping up because, in some ways, because we haven't targeted the roots of the problem, which is the mentality that drives these oppressive systems in the first place. Yeah, it does seem that a lot of people buy into it. I'm good, you're bad, you know, and they get into fights, which I'm not sure, again, how much that moves the needle. It's hard not to. It's really hard not to when, you know, you're, you're confronting, which is itself, you know, a power issue there, that word, uh, people who are, you know, really antithetical to your beliefs. It's it's not easy to, you know, not get into a fighting stance. It's it's very difficult to do that. How possible is that? Well, it's true. It's challenging to do, no question. And I'm not saying this is easy. And I also want to, you know, not uh, encourage sort of some of the toxic moral perfectionism that is also <laughs> starting to plague some of those of us who are working towards social transformation and not, you know, suggest that we have to try to be perfect and, and not even feel angry or not even feel bad about what's going on. Of course we're going to. And of course we're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. However, we also can commit, if we commit to developing relational literacy, which is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating, we can significantly offset some of these tendencies. And this is not rocket science. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me that most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. Right. And yet we don't get a single formal lesson and how to be like healthy relational beings. And when you look at the most pressing problems facing the world today, these are not problems that exist because people don't know how to do geometry. <laughs> So, you know, if, yeah. if our collective level of relational, relational literacy were not so low, you know, if we weren't still living in what I like to refer to as the relational dark ages, mm. we would be much better positioned to make the kinds of healthful choices that are essential for a functional democracy. So really awareness and, and the development of relational literacy is a key. I feel so strongly about this that that the problem that we face, a key part of the problems that we're facing are relational dysfunction that we don't recognize as dysfunctional and that we haven't been given the tools to rectify. Um, I feel so strongly about this that I've actually written a book on relational literacy to address this very problem. You had mentioned earlier, you know, why psychology and, um, you know, why bring psychology into this conversation. And, and this is really why, because while it's really important to look at oppression and abuse through the lenses of, of politics, of course, and um, philosophy and ideology and economics, we also need to look at this problem through the lens of relationships because oppression and abuse on all levels ultimately reflects and reinforces a relational dysfunction. It's a dysfunction in the way that we relate, whether it's as social groups to other, other individuals, to non-human animals, or mm -hmm. to the environment. So if we really want to challenge and change oppression, we need to change the way we relate. Boy, interesting. I, you know, I can see that uh, carrying out throughout, well, at least American history that you know, I'm familiar with, like you know, the white man conquering the untamed you know, and bringing civilization. It's like, boy, you talk about <laughs> a relational imbalance there. Uh, right. I, I, I was fascinated by the phrase you just used, we're in relational, the relational dark ages. What do you mean by that? That's an interesting point. Like maybe we're moving into some renaissance? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we know a lot more now than we did in the medi- in medieval times. Um, it's just that most people have not accessed this information yet. I mean, the principles and tools for healthy relating, which include how to communicate effectively to, so that our message is heard as we intend it to be, so that we cultivate greater understanding and deeper connections rather than the opposite, they exist and they're out there and anybody can learn them if they really want to. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, this is not what we're unfortunately learning in school, um, but that, even that is starting to change. But, but these, these tools are tools that we, anybody can avail themselves of. And so a lot of, I mean, the reason that I have written Powerarchy and, and my follow-up book, Getting Relationships Right, is really to try to raise awareness. Um, I think when people are aware of what Powerarchy is, and how it's structured. It functions on implicit rules, and um, you know most of us don't see it for right, what it is. Right. We're much better positioned to to challenge it. Boy, it's always good to take a different angle to look at something than than we've we've already uh, looked at it. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. And uh, there's a lot of different angles that can be helpful to that. We're talking with uh, Melanie Joy, author of a new book, Powerarchy. Power Archie. The subtitle is Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. Boy, you can see it so much. Who, who's the target audience f- for this book? Well, anybody who is um, concerned about uh, abuses of power in the world, particularly abuses, systemic abuses of power. So really working to challenge oppressive systems such as racism and sexism and speciesism, carnism, um, and people who are actively involved in the, typically actively involved in these issues. And it can also be for people who really want to examine the role of power in their own life and their own relationships, because as I said, the same problematic mentality that drives societal oppression also drives interpersonal um, abuse and dysfunction. And there's, of course, all different levels of of this powerarchy abuse, I'm sure. Uh, you know, there's some really extreme and some less extreme, but, but still there. And, uh, you know, getting the concept of it, obviously, is something you would like uh, people to get. And before hearing of your book, like many Americans trying to figure out this deeply disturbing president, uh, the president's infantile disregard for any ill effects on people seems to undergird much of what he does. In many cases, he seems really motivated by enforcing cruelty. And I wonder, does this fit the concept of powerarchy, or is it an outlier in its really breathtaking extreme? Yeah, I mean, both are true. He is a poster child for powerarchy and an outlier. And as you rightly point out, when we look at powerarchy, I mean, it's not that either, you know, something is a powerarchy necessarily or not. It's how powerarchical is it a system. So Uh if you look at a relationship, like I was giving you the example earlier of a, a good relationship in your life versus a problematic one, and one is powerarchical and the other isn't, most of us have relationships that fall somewhere on that spectrum. You know, a relationship can be more or less powerarchical, like right. a person can be more or less powerarchical. And I think, you know, what's most important in our own lives is not necessarily, you know, where we fall in terms of how powerarchical we are in our way of relating, but what direction we're heading on on that spectrum. 
you know, are we committing to being more relational in our interactions? Because, again, I think it's important to avoid this, what, what is becoming sort of a toxic moral perfectionism um, yeah. that is starting to, to plague some of our resistance movements where, you know, one, where we hold ourselves and others uh, to impossible standards. Um, again, this is to some degree um, fueled by the toxic communication of the president with this right, wrong, good, bad, you're with us, you're uh-huh. against us. Very young thinking. Um, we start to think either you're, you know, you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. You're a victim, you're a perpetrator, or you're a hero, and we lose the capacity wow. for nuance. And so we start to hold ourselves and others to impossible standards where, you know, one wrong word one selfish choice suddenly makes somebody the enemy. Wow. Uh, I think about that with all the, uh, what, there's about 50 or 100 presidential candidates out there, and something they may have said a long time ago, or some little slip of the tongue, you know, they're not perfect. Oh, my goodness, we have to disregard them. And that, I, th- I, I agree, I think that is pretty toxic, really, because, you know, nobody's perfect, as they say, but as, as you say, there, there's a spectrum of it. And thinking of the spectrum... I think this relates to the topic. A woman might occasionally, I mean, it's possible, it's possible she could use violence and or passive aggression against a man, but she can't oppress him. Only he can oppress her. What's, what's the distinction there? Talk about that, if you would, please. Well, both oppression and abuse are the unjust, um, allocation and use of power. They, they both fall under that same definition. There's a key difference between them. Oppression happens on a systemic, uh, not just a systemic level, but in, on an institutional level. So oppression is institutionalized, meaning it is embraced and maintained or supported by social institutions, whereas abuse is um, typically, it's on a smaller scale and it is not institutionalized. So somebody who holds more social power or a group with more social power, in this case we're talking about men and women, um, men are able to oppress women or we would say women are an oppressed group, um, whereas the opposite cannot be true because because patriarchy is an institutionalized oppression, is institutionalized oppression against women and not men. There is no institutionalized oppression specifically directed at men by women. But a woman can abuse a man right. in, you know, in her behavior or in a relationship. Abuse is like oppression on a smaller scale. Uh-huh. The mentality that drives them is the same. But it's not institutionalized, and it, you know, it, it, there's a structure that has supported, you know, uh, white right. male dominance uh, and oppression for a long time, where it ha- obviously hasn't been there for women. So it's that system that that we're talking about here. And I've often wondered. Why people who at least claim to value freedom and democracy so often act and vote against those values? I I just don't have a clue. Do you? Well, I mean, this I think this conversation has been discussed by by other people anyway in terms of disinformation and misinformation. Right. We know that, you know, education in the United States isn't fantastic and so many people are, you know, easily convinced to vote against their interests by being coerced to believe in information that's actually not true. And I think one of the key 
um, you know, differences, as I mentioned earlier, between people who support Trump and people who support, you know, right-wing initiatives and policies, non-relational policies in general um, and practices, is the fact that they don't actually realize that they're supporting non-relational policies and practices. And so the challenge is to how do you raise awareness of this reality yeah. in this age of disinformation um, and misinformation? How do we raise awareness of this reality in a way that increases the chances that our message will be heard as we intend it to be? And this reality that power argues that structural injustices exist. If you talk to the vast majority of people who vote for policies that are non-relational, and these are policies that grow rather than shrink unjust power imbalances um, or maintain and grow rather than shrink unjust power imbalances and that do not reflect integrity and honor the dignity of all involved. Um, the vast majority of those people will not believe that that's what they're contributing to. Uh -huh. They simply don't know. And we, you know, if when we talk about structural injustices and systems of oppression, power arcades, and whatever, we often do so in a language that resonates with those of us who already understand this reality, mm. but not with a language that other people, that's an entry point to inviting people who are not aware of this and who do not even think in this, you know, necessarily think in terms of systems yet. Um, so I wonder, so, uh, I was just going to ask, I, I wonder if you might have a prescription for a way to communicate with people who you and I might see as oppressed economically, politically, you know, live in not the best neighborhoods, and yet are enthusiastic supporters of the powerarchy. How, how can they be, what, what can reach them? You know, you don't, there's a tendency, I think, to, to treat them, you know, as less than, which is a big part of the problem. It's a huge part of the problem. And so I think the, the answer to this question is, is twofold. You know, one is strategic. You know, so uh -huh, what, is yes. the, what is actually the form of communication that would be most effective? Um, and the other one is more attitudinal. Like, how do we have an attitude that increases the chances that we'll pe people will be receptive to what we're saying? Because uh, yes. you know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of a communication uh, from somebody who seems that they're looking down on yes. you oh, yes. or thinks you just don't get it or that you're somehow fundamentally, you know, you're morally inferior because you don't believe what they believe. Right. You're not likely to be receptive to their message. And in fact, studies have shown that when people feel shamed, when the people yeah. feel that their dignity is not honored, um, in, when we communicate in a way that's shaming, for example, um, they are less likely oh, to sure. actually make the kinds of changes that we're asking them to make. When people feel that their dignity is not being honored, uh -huh. they actually become defensive, and that sure. means that they lose their, um, they are less likely to think rationally, hmm. and they're less likely to feel empathy. Basically, they shut down. People who feel under threat of being shamed typically withdraw or attack in self-defense. They are not receptive and responsive to incoming information in the same way that they would otherwise be. So it's simply not strategic to communicate in such a way. Um, and we really need to, in my opinion, sure. have uh, c construct information that speaks to people with a very, not only a background uh, or, or not, no background or limited background in understanding systemic oppression, 
um, but that is is non-shaming. We have this mm. I, one of the uh, in my first book, uh, my earlier book, I should say, "Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows." Um, I was uh, I wrote this book to raise awareness of a powerarchy that I named Carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. And um, I had done my doctoral written my doctoral dissertation on the psychology of eating animals, and my my question, you know, the guiding question was, how is it possible that rational, compassionate people, just like I had been for my entire life, and I had eaten meat, eggs, and dairy happily, heavily. Um, you know, how is it that we resist information that challenges our meat eating, essentially? And, um, and a lot of the work that we did, my organization and I did thereafter, was to con- try to construct an explanation, not simply of the problem of animal agriculture and the benefits of not eating animals, you know, for animals, the environment, and, and sure. human health, oh, yeah. but also of the psychology underneath it. So that we could, because this psychology is based on a defensiveness. When we internalize powerarchy, and you've, I'm sure you've seen this, as soon as you start talking about, you know, racism, for example, with white people, mm-hmm. or sexism with men sometimes, anyway, mm-hmm. um, there's this automatic defensiveness. Yeah. It's like vegans talking about eating animals. You know, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal. And so mm. how do we construct mm. a dialogue that raises awareness of the defenses so that these defenses lose some of their power? Wow. That is quite a challenge, I must say. That I mean, we've all seen, you know, sort of the holier-than-thou, you know, I'm a vegan, how can you eat that stuff? And I frankly wondered about, you know, people can happily eat pork, for example, and pigs are really bright-feeling mm-hmm. animals. But the idea of eating a dog, oh, no, horrors. I, you know, what, I, I don't really understand, you know, that, that system. But that may be, of course, a little bit. But it's just it's setting up a system of what is better and how, you know, which is more valuable, which has more value. I don't know how those standards come about, except over time, I guess, you know. And that people... I wonder how, uh, if people are, are, are ready for uh, non-powerarchical systems. I mean, people have lived with and accepted powerarchies for centuries. Are powerarchies not universal, really? Is there not a large portion of people with a psychological need for hierarchical structure and order as some kind of reassurance and that to not have that is is frightening. Your thoughts? Well, powerarchy is not it's, it, it's not hierarchy. It's a particular type of hierarchy. Not all hierarchy is problematic. So there are people oh, who have a need for hierarchical structure and order, but that's not the same as having a need for powerarchical oh. dominion and oppression. Um, and it's true, powerarchy is widespread. It's been around for a very long time. Um, and it's, it's also true that we have lots of examples, you know, for as long as powerarchy, or we could say at least almost as long as powerarchy has existed, there has existed alongside this challenges to powerarchy. Um, you know, unjust uses of power are, have consistently been challenged. And as we evolve, we're in better and better positions to really not have to 
be so reactive and not have to be so instinctive in our reactions, um, or automatic, I should say, in our reactions, but rather to bring more consciousness and intentionality into our reactions. I mean, yeah, we've always been murdering other... Murder has existed, you know, throughout the course of human history, so has rape, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, can't or shouldn't take measures to reduce the chances of this happening or the instances of this happening. Um, so, and I wanted to speak to something you said earlier about, um, you know, holier-than-thou vegans. And mm-hmm. I think that's it's really important also to recognize that the defensive structure of powerarchies, powerarchies are structured to basically uh, condition us to resist the very information that would get us out of the box, the powerarchical box we don't realize that we're in. And one of the ways they do this is by stereotyping those who challenge particular powerarchies. We've seen this, you know, happen for centuries. For example, you know, the suffragists um, were called sentimentalists. Right. Um, the anti-slavery, the abolitionists in the United States were, were also called overly emotional sentimentalists. You know, vegans are often called sentimental, overly emotional animal lovers or holier-than-thou. It's there's a way in which um, we learn to have distorted perceptions of anybody who challenges the powerarchy. Um, and this is a form of shooting the messenger. You know, if we shoot the messenger, we don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. And this is another reason that I think it's so important to be, to try to practice, uh, to, to work on communicating with those to whom we're reaching out in a way that speaks in a language that they can receive because there are already existing stereotypes about those of us who are working for social justice that are quite difficult to debunk. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And, and I realized, you know, after I was listening to you ask about uh, my, you know, perception of some vegans as holier than thou, that my even saying that is like, you know, putting them down somehow. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a difficult uh, thing to, to deal with, uh, you know, that, that if somebody is holier than thou, obviously that's not okay. But there, we have to talk about different ways of talking about it, I guess. And as you were saying, you know, uh, th- those who challenge powerarchies, you know, are, are derided sentimentalists. Uh, suffragettes were hysterical, certainly. Uh, but... I wonder about, frankly, what strikes me as insecure, macho men deride men who speak out against war. They call them pussies. And I guess I can say that now that Trump has. How are such labels used to weaken social movements today? And how is it that such derision and name calling can be so effective? What can we do? And people are so afraid of being shamed. And, you know, our, our culture, there's, there's an epidemic of shame in the culture. I mean, most people are highly defended against feeling shame and being mm. put down, against harms to their dignity. You know, shame is not the same as guilt. Right. Guilt is the feeling that we have when we've done something bad, right? So we feel bad about it. We feel guilty about a behavior. Shame is a feeling we have when we think, I am bad, Right, so mm. shame is a feeling of being less than, and in particular of being less worthy than others. We know that all of us have um, a core need to feel that we are fundamentally worthy. 
And shame is an incredibly destructive and debilitating emotion that most people are deeply defended against and are bound to use as a weapon, as a weapon to silence others um, and to exercise power and control over others. So we need to really, you know, kind of break this. Uh, we're in a cycle of sort of shame, counter-shame, as you pointed out earlier. One way that we can tell that we're under the influence of the powerarchical mentality is, to, is, is when we feel one of the corresponding emotions of either contempt or shame. Contempt is an indication that we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority. And shame is an indication that we're perceiving ourselves in a position of moral inferiority. These are like two sides of the powerarchical coin. Um, they're both profoundly disconnecting non-relational emotions. They're also they're relational emotions in that they, they are experienced in relationship, right? We only experience these emotions when we're in a relationship or in a comparison. Comparing, for example, ourselves with others or comparing ourselves with an idealized or a demonized version of ourselves. You know, we shame our, most of us shame ourselves a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so the antidote to both of these emotions is empathy. It's difficult, if not impossible, to look down on or up at someone if you're looking at the world through their eyes. Right. That is uh, an important thing to do and not, not always realized. And I, I'm reminded when, uh, you know, just how to not look down on people with whom you disagree. I remember when I was running for political office, if I would just listen to people, those people would think, boy, he's really smart, just because I didn't say anything, because I'm listening to them. And somehow they get the favorable impression. People like to be listened to and respected and, as you say, have some dignity. And so much of what we do, right and left, it's it's a problem. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with uh, Melanie Joy, author of uh, Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. And you talk about transformation. There's a lot of issues out there. And those of us, you know, on what the media seems to call left, who care about economic justice, racism, fascism, climate change, public education, anti-imperialism, it's like we can't do it all, so we tend to prioritize. And I wonder if that placing them in a competitive hierarchy can be problematic. It ain't easy. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, we can choose a particular cause, and we do. I mean, we only have so much time. And, you know, people do feel compelled to uh, work in certain causes, and so we need to honor this, these realities. Um, we can work for any particular cause and at the same, without at the same time reinforcing powerarchy um, in general. When we, number one, as you say, don't put these causes in a competitive hierarchy, thinking, for example, that, you know, um, you know my cause is more important than your cause, whatever that may be. And, and when we recognize that the same underlying mentality, this powerarchical mentality drives all of the same, all of the oppressions. 
And then we can yeah. be careful not to use, you know, reinforce powerarchy as we're working for social transformation. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, vegans, for example, who are trying to, uh, working toward animal rights, can nevertheless not use imagery of objectified women, just as feminists can, you know, not eat animals in the process or work toward the reduction or the elimination of eating animals in the process of their outreach. So we can, we can do our own outreach and do our work in our particular cause areas without reinforcing powerarchy in other forms. And it does seem like in order to really effectively address this problem of powerarchy, we need to understand what the heck it is. And it's 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 different. It is. It's sort of, you know, most of the time when there are discussions about social and economic change, we focus on ideology and philosophy and a bunch of other things, but miss out on the other crucial element, our psychology. What, what harm comes from leaving out the factor of psychology? I'm, I'm guessing a lot of harm. Well, when we focus on the content, which is the what, you know, when we focus on the content rather than the process, which is the how, we can end up working toward, you know, we can end up reducing, as I said earlier, the the impact of one oppression, um, but not ever really targeting the roots of oppression in the first place. So it's not enough to simply ask, like, who... Uh, is oppressing whom. We need to look at why and how we oppress in the first place. Because the problem lies in the process, not just the content. Like I said, the content is what or whom is being oppressed, who is oppressing whom. The process is how, how and why we're oppressing in the first place. And that is getting at the roots of oppression. So it's important to address the content, no question. It's important to discuss politics and to challenge structural injustices and to continue doing everything we're already doing. I'm just saying it's also very important that we understand why these problems, psychologically why these problems have been emerging and how we keep recreating them. Because one of the things um, that we can see is that some of our resistance movements are, you know, or at least parts of these movements are kind of becoming like mini powerarchies as people use um, powerarchy to show that powerarchy is wrong. Um, you know, we speak out against injustice um, while using tactics that are sometimes unjust, while, like, demeaning or berating those who don't agree with us, for example. So it's really important that we, we make our movements safe spaces where integrity is practiced and dignity is honored so that our movements can be resilient. You know, a resilient movement or system, mm. I could say, like a resilient relationship, mm-hmm is one in which its proponents feel both secure and connected. And resilient systems are powerful systems. Yes. You know, so we can disagree perhaps with ideology or tactics or, you know, but we still are able to work together in a way that increases our sense of connection and increases our power. Boy, that term resiliency, that is so important, I think, uh, in so many different ways. I mean, I'm reminded recently I, I learned that Emma Goldman, a great, way ahead of her time, uh, American uh, philosopher and activist, uh, described her sense of patriotism. And some people saw her as, you know, a traitor, not patriotic. But she said it's like a good relationship. There are times when it's <clears throat> not always good, but you have to have resilience 
you have to have resilience to criticize and be part of it and thus make things better and not just get so rigid. And I'm reminded, too, of the, you know, the founding documents. Uh, all men, they meant all people, are created equal. And that's a hard thing to live up to, and it doesn't seem like it's ever really been a reality. And my sense is that when people sense economic shortage, that there's not enough to go around. I got to fight and struggle for my own, you know, and the only way I'm going to get ahead is by beating down the other guy. Uh, I wonder about how, how much economics and, you know, people who are working jobs they hate, you know, year after year after year, they don't feel a lot of, uh, well, I can imagine they can be uh, not feeling as dignified as as we would, you know, hope that they would feel. But I wonder how much economic inequality uh, is a is a uh, uh, exacerbating factor to this whole thing. Absolutely, and inequality is an exacerbating factor. I mean, people have to feel safe enough in order to feel that they can take positive action on their own and others' behalf. And so, to some degree, to be able to work toward social transformation in this way is a privilege. You need to have a certain level of privilege in order to be able to challenge the system. This doesn't mean that when we're in positions where we're oppressed, we're powerless to make change. What it means is that we really do need to feel a certain level of safety and have a certain sense of personal agency. That means that we believe that we can um, take action on our own or others' behalf. And so, you know, this is another reason that I was saying that our movements need to be safe spaces. When people feel unsafe, they're less generous, they're less relational. You know, it's, it's easier to engage in relational behaviors when we feel safe enough to do so. That's that's an important point, I think, and uh, it might be good, you know, this term relational versus non-relational uh, may be good because it's, it's so kind of different, maybe just to restate how that factors into what you mean by relational versus non-relational. It seems like underlying yeah. it all. It, it, absolutely. So non-relational behaviors are behaviors that violate integrity. That means they don't reflect Integrity is the integration of our value, core moral values and practices. And in this case, I'm referring to the two universal core moral values that are shared uh, across cultures um, of compassion, which is caring, and justice. So relational behaviors are behaviors that reflect integrity and honor dignity, where we perceive others or treat others as though they are fundamentally worthy, as though we were not born or don't have more intrinsic worth than they do. And these behaviors lead to mutual connection or greater mutual connection. So we feel more connected with one another when we engage in these behaviors. Non-relational behaviors violate integrity, harm dignity, and lead to disconnection. And, and that's it. That's kind of the, the, the foundation. Um, and so if you look at your own relationships again, and you can see that, that each interaction you have, each relationship you have can be more or less relational or more or less powerarchical. Powerarchy is the system that conditions us to engage in non-relational behaviors. Mm. And it's based on a, a non-relational belief. This is the belief that there's a hierarchy of moral worth. And this powerarchical mentality that we all inherit, it will, it's, it's, 
it can be helpful to think of this mentality that comes with the system that we internalize. It can be helpful to think of this mentality as like an entity that has a survival instinct. And it wants to keep itself alive inside of you. And the way it does this is by trying to trick you into constantly finding a morally inferior other. Mm. And constantly, no matter how, you know, good we try to be, this powerarchical mentality will try to give us all sorts of justifications for why this person or this group doesn't deserve to be treated with the respect we might otherwise offer them. And, you know, the, the justification du jour is because we're morally outraged, because somebody has done something that we think is immoral, therefore we have the right to treat them disrespectfully. Hmm. But the problem with this is that powerarchy is contagious. Oh, yeah. And there have been interesting studies done on how powerarchy begets powerarchy, sure. meaning that when somebody uses a powerarchical be- or engages in a powerarchical behavior, the other person is much more likely to respond by using powerarchy well, as course. a reaction. Sure. And even if they don't respond directly, they're more likely to carry out a powerarchical behavior later in the day towards somebody else. Uh, wow. I can think of so many, so many examples of that. You know, people who, I mean, let's face it, a large, large percentage of the people in jail, mass incarceration, uh, are black people. And they, uh, it, jail doesn't work. You know, it maintains, and I think it's got to reinforce this whole belief in powerarchy that, you know, I am less than, I'm a shamed person, I'm a bad person. Man, that doesn't work. It's hard to get around that. But I also think of one of the unforeseen and unintended consequences of uh, a lot of the Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, work projects was people living together, all working on the same project, thus developing relationships with one another. So that, you know, if you're all working on the same project, if, if one person gets sick or has a hard time, it's in the interest of the community to care about this person because that affects you know how his or her job is going, how their life is going, affects me. Whereas nowadays, we don't have that at all. It's just dog eat dog, and and you got to do that. And you know, it seems like the core of racism is that. Uh, well, one of the cores is that. Uh, you know, I may, a white person may be, you know, considering him or herself lowly, but wow, at least I'm better than those others. Wow. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Exactly. It's- and we can see that, you know, there are also examples of people who are, you know, who, who are not feeding powerarchy as much, or ourselves, you know, in different situations, we're more or less powerarchical. So, you know, you were talking about economic insecurity and how that affects us. And there's no question we feel less safe. We're more likely to become defensive and to engage powerarchically. Um, and with our own families, however, you know, sometimes this just makes us even more protective yeah. and more, you know, concerned with the greater good of the group. So it's a process, though. I think it's yeah. really, I, it's it's really important to see this, like moving beyond powerarchy as a process, a process of developing relational literacy. And sort of the beauty of this process is that every interaction is an opportunity to interrupt dysfunction ah. and to work toward greater health and compassion and connection. 
Yeah, and I, uh, the powerarchy uh, of which you write is not necessarily a permanent institution. It's going on for a long time, but it's not necessarily permanent. And I'm sure, frankly, that you wouldn't have written this book if you felt that it cannot be successfully uh, challenged somehow. For starters, just as you're taught to read, you argue we, so must we become power literate. What does that entail? What would that education look like? Well, being power literate is really being informed about the way that power dynamics, which inform powerarchy, basically the way powerarchies and having power in general affects our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And there's, you know, been some recent research in this issue. There's an interesting uh, book called The Power Paradox that um, talks about how even having small amounts of power when we're in a position where we're granted small amounts of power over others causes us to start to think and behave more powerarchically, um, as I would put it. So, for example, when you're in a position as boss um, or you're a white person relating to a person of color, when you're in a position of power over others, you are actually more or less likely to feel empathy towards them the way that you normally would. Oh, for sure. You're more likely to feel entitled to break the rules um, where you wouldn't tolerate them doing the same. You're more likely to hold a double standard, have a double standard for yourself. So once we recognize the potentially corrupting effect of power, and once we recognize you know, what powerarchy is, and how powerarchical systems really are structured. There is a structure to them. They have specific ways to keep themselves alive and a specific mentality that comes with them. We are much better positioned um, to step outside of the system or at least to um, detach from the system a little bit, to create some space between ourselves and the system um, so that we can really reconnect with what we authentically think and feel rather than just going on autopilot based on what we've been taught to think and feel. So when you hear that voice in your head, you know, like putting somebody else down, making judgments about somebody else, um, you know, you can notice that for what it is. Have compassion for yourself. You know, don't hold yourself to an impossible standard thinking you shouldn't be thinking this way because we all do. But at least a huge first step is recognizing it and really appreciating that, you know, all of us is simply the res- are simply the result of our, the hard wiring that we were born with, right. you know, our biology and every single experience we've had throughout our lives. You know, expecting people to be different from who and how they are is like expecting trees that have been rained on not to be wet. And this does not mean we don't hold people accountable right. um, or try to change problematic behaviors. Of course we do, but we can do so in a way that still honors their dignity. Um, like you were saying about prison, you know, somebody coming out of prison, how, the chances of, of, of this person being uh, increasingly violent from having been in, in prison are very high. How do we respond to this person? Do we judge them for this? Right. Or do we have compassion for the fact that they had to go through this traumatic experience in the first place? And the, the less then that they must feel for the rest of their lives, it's just, well, who does that help? How does, it's awful, awful, awful. I know it's a hard problem to deal with. Now, here, being in New Hampshire and the 2020 election coming up, I had the honor of interviewing presidential candidate and best-selling author Marianne Williamson, who has praised your book. Uh, I was seriously impressed with her approach to problems and opportunities 
which is really unique among the candidates. Obviously, she's not going to be the nominee, but she has a lot of things to say. When she suggests that developing awareness and practicing mindfulness are perhaps two of the most important methods for cultivating both individual and societal transformation. What do you think? I, I, I can I think mean, she's right. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I also wrote about that in Powerarchy. I mean, people, mindfulness is really the true opposite of Powerarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, mindfulness is both a state and a practice of being more aware and present in the moment. And when we're more mindful and we're more connected, we're more self-connected and we're more connected with others, we're more, um, <clears throat> we have greater clarity. Powerarchy is organized around confusion. We're more compassionate. Powerarchy is organized around cruelty. You know, we're more calm, and powerarchy is, is, is organized around fear and, and anger. So awareness is also important. As I mentioned earlier, powerarchy operates in implicit roles and rules. It's an invisible system that is, um, you know, that, that sustains itself in large part by remaining unseen. Yeah. Once we see it and recognize exactly. it for what it is, it loses yeah. a lot of its hold over us. Yep, just naming things and just recognizing it's so powerful. Well, many people who are upset about powerarchies are reluctant to, for example, take to the streets to protest or, you know, volunteer for a campaign, whatever. It's just not in their nature. But as you write, powerarchies can be addressed successfully by, as you say, working quietly in the background or marching in the front lines. Say more about that, please. And people do. Well, it's it's people, you know, again, it's important for us to honor who we are and how we best work towards change um, and not to try to force ourselves to be something that we're not because it's not sustainable and people end up burning out that way. Yes. Um, yes. But we can interrupt the, because powerarchy is so omnipresent, um, you know, we have multiple opportunities to interrupt powerarchy and interrupt the powerarchical process. And we can do that marching on the streets, and we can do that, you know, supporting organizations that are doing social transformation work. And we can, we can do that by also, all of us can do this, by moving through our minute-to-minute lives yes. with greater intentionality and a greater commitment to healthy relationality, to practicing integrity and honoring dignity. And understanding what powerarchy is, I think, is, is important. And if people can, you know, try to integrate that into their lives and mindfulness, whatever, just, you know, it's, it's a long process. We've had these powerarchies for a long time, and they've done a lot of not-so-good things. But change isn't easy, but it does come, and a lot of this personal stuff is, is a big deal fascinating book. Interesting new angle to look at these uh, problems that many of us have been dealing with for so long and frankly been frustrated that it, you know, there's more to it than so far we've understood. The book is called Powerarchy, Understanding the Psychology of Oppression for Social Transformation. And I've had the uh, uh, privilege of, of speaking with uh, its author, Melanie Joy. Thank you so much for being with us today. Fascinating uh, stuff, really important. Thank you so much. And anybody who'd like more information can go to powerarchy.org. Oh, yeah. That's easy enough. There's always some website you can point them to, (laughs) powerarchy.org. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Likewise.
more to see.